All right, we're in Nehemiah chapter 8 today. Hey, everybody at home, where this is the part that goes on YouTube. Uh, I'm going to read to you a quote. Uh, believe it or not, we don't make all this up. Uh, this is from a commentary. It's been the primary commentary I've used for this. Ezra and Nehemiah reformed, doesn't that sound good? Reformed expository commentaries series. This guy's name is Derek Thomas. We'll quote him again later. I thought about throwing all the text up there, but that's boring. You guys can go buy the commentary if you want. Here we go. Oh, you can watch it online later. I'm getting out of control. Here we go. Every true progress in gospel awakening is conditioned by a renewed and deepened study of the scriptures. Two men are involved in Jerusalem's renewal and reformation. One is, of course, Nehemiah. The tireless civil engineer and governor. This is, I'm quoting it. Nehemiah has some rough edges. Choleric by temperament, he finds it easier to do than to be. He sometimes gets angry and he shows it. And his prayers are peppered with imprecations upon God's and his enemies to make a point that make us question whether they demonstrate righteous indignation or hubris. But Jerusalem needed a leader with enough vision and determination to cajole a weak and disorganized people into action. And Nehemiah was exactly what they needed. God raises up leaders of differing temperaments to do what needs to be done. Much of Nehemiah's work so far has been needful, if not the most exciting, but Nehemiah is about to disappear off the pages of the book that bear his name. The God who pushes one forward into the limelight pulls him back again. It is time for Ezra who has been there all along to come forward. And curiously, it is time for Nehemiah to retreat into the background. His name will appear only four times in the rest of the book, always in the third person, indicating he was the governor, as though quoting some official record. His work continues. is no longer in the spotlight. Let me read Nehemiah chapter 8 to you. Uh, if you don't... Open up your Bibles, right? Hopefully you brought one. That's okay if you didn't. There's ones online. All this stuff is online. Nehemiah chapter 8. Oh, we're going to do something weird today. Hopefully it will make sense to you later. All right, when we get to the sermon. If you are able, in other words, if you, if you don't want to do this, don't do it. Your heart's not in it, right? The Sabbath is for the man. Rest. But if you are able to rise in respect of God's word, I'm going to read the entire chapter 8. Please rise if you are able and if you want to. It's an entire chapter. If you get tired, sit down. Chapter 8, Ezra reads the law. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it facing the square before the water grate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a, a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah. And on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Makijah, Hashum, 
Hashbarana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Don't get carried away. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and scribe, and Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to any who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that people in Israel should dwell in booths, shelters, during the feast of the seventh month. And they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olives, wild olive, myrtle palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each each on his roof. And in their courts, in the courts of the house of God, in the square at the water gate, in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord. And we say, thanks be to God. Please be seated. My goodness. We're going to look at three points today. One, hopefully some of this is, excuse me, got a little loud. One, uh, you see these in the text, right? One, read the word and give the sense. Two, turn mourning into dancing. Three, do what the word says. All right, let's take a look at this. And we're going to start with... Guess what? Verse 1. All the people gathered as one man into the square, and they told who? Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law. Isn't it interesting? They don't call for Nehemiah. They call for the man that can teach. Ezra is who the people call for because he is a respected Bible teacher. In fact, the book right before this book is the book of Ezra, right? He is a priest. He is a scholar. He is a teacher of the Scriptures. He is very, very different from Nehemiah. In fact, he's been absent for over 13 years. What do you think he's been doing in all that time? 
twiddling his thumbs? Nonsense. He's not, his name is not in any of the official records, but you know what he's been doing. He's a teacher. He's been teaching. He's not YouTube famous, but uh, he was probably, you know people like this, right? People maybe in this room that faithfully teach in the background, no matter how many people show up. But two things. One, nothing that we do in the name of Jesus and for his glory is insignificant. Nothing that we do, not in our own names, not in our own power, nothing that we do in the name of Jesus and for his glory is insignificant. Two, you know who saw and was well pleased with his faithfulness? Who saw him? What he was doing those last 13 years. And what happens next? This isn't Ezra, right? All of a sudden a revival takes place. We'll talk about the Feast of Booths and the revival tents shortly, but clearly this is not Ezra any more than the rest of this book has been about Nehemiah. He is a, a wind instrument being filled with the breath of God, the Spirit of God for this moment. And this is true for you and I today. Friends, believe and live as though it were true because it is. We are to be instruments of God, not in our own power, not in our own strength, not rowing a boat as hard as we can, but by His what? His grace, free gift. And his spirit, the wind of God filling our sails and being led and used according to his will. What else is going on here is interesting. Verse 2, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard had gathered. Listen, there's no warning. You're reading the verses, we're on verse 2. There's no preamble. There's no, uh, hey, everybody, we need to get together. People gather together, and women and children were with them. They're clearly uh, not going to be in the temple where that stuff is not allowed, that sacred space. They're going to be at the water gate. You know why? We'll get, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's a holy day. It's a festival. It's a, if you'll forgive me, a harvest party for families. We'll get there. But before all that, I'm getting ahead of myself, what did they do? They read, and they read, and they read, and they read, and they read. And then they read some more from the Word of God. More importantly, well, not more importantly, my goodness, they listened. Just as we are today to listen to the voice of God through the Spirit working in His Scriptures. We just read chapter 8 today. I don't know if you noticed, but we skipped over chapter 7, verses 5 through 73. It's a genealogy. My goodness, how would you feel right now if I made you stand up through all of that? I know I wouldn't have made it. And that said, this is nothing compared to Ezra. Ezra, in today's passage, reads straight scripture. The Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Ooh, Numbers. Was he reading from Numbers? Deuteronomy. All day long. The meeting lasted all morning. Verse 3, from early morning until midday. Perhaps as long as six hours. We're not ready for that. What's amazing is that this for them also, is not normal. This is something new, right? All the ears of the people were attentive. I don't care who you are, where you come from, what culture you're at. You're going to stand there? Stand. For how many hours did I say? Six. You're going to stand? I can't stand through a football game. How are you going to stand six hours? Attentive. 
This is something new, right? Verse 5. And as he opened it, all the people stood. They stood up. Now listen, this was better than fighting the evil three musketeers, right? It was better than building that wall. I don't want to build a wall. Take a break and listen to the word of God. Lord knows they needed to. They had forgotten who they were. And they needed to hear the word preached. That said, something was going on here. This was the beginning of revival. We'll see. We'll get there. But this is revival. Get the tents ready. People were attentive. Verse 3, no coffee, no intermissions. They answer back, amen, amen. They use their voices in the congregation. Back in verse 1, all the people gathered as one man, one person, though they are many, women, children, families, they were all one person, one body. Does that sound familiar to you as a foretaste of something? Look at the scriptures of Pentecost when you have a chance. What happened? What was going on? God stepped in and brought life And he brought it abundantly through what? The reading of his word. If this could happen in the Old Testament before Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit, how much more so now in the age of the church, the age of the Spirit, should we today listen to his word attentively? I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm just trying to tell you what it says. Hebrews, this is my favorite book of the Bible. I say that all the time, don't I? Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Oh, in the Old Testament, he spoke in many ways. Wish that we could listen. But in these last days, guess what? For us, he has spoken to us by whom? His Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also he created the world. Ooh, we got a much bigger revelation, do we not? In fact, jump forward to chapter 2 in Hebrews. Don't do it right now. You can watch this online later. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, because of all this stuff in chapter 1, we in the New Testament era, we in the era of the church, we in the era of the Spirit, must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Angels long to look into what's happening today here in this church. Not only did they read and read and read and read and read, but they gave the sense. They were given the sense. Is that still up there? Good. They give the sense. Verse 7. Listen to all those people. Yeshua. I'm not going to read them all, right? They're Levites. Summary. What did they do? They clearly gave... These are small groups, right? People stayed where they were, but the Levites, the priests, went around and they explained to them in, in small group breakout. They didn't call it back that back then, right? But that's what they did. They explained what was going on in the Word. They gave the sense. By the way, this is super reformed. Uh, I found this little book. I was sitting once in our lobby over there. Not this lobby, but this. How many lobbies do we have? You get it. It says, what is the reformed faith? By some guy named John R. DeWitt. I have a feeling he's famous. Here's what it says. Again, I'm going to quote a lot of things, so you know this is not from me. We proceed to ask the basic question, what characterizes preaching in the New Testament? Point A. I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm going to paraphrase some of it. I'm going to read it. Stop, Samuel. Preaching is certainly the exposition of the Word of God. When we are dealing with the Scriptures, seeking to expound them, we must wrestle with the passage before us. We must approach it exegetically. We must seek to grasp its meaning. Other branches of study are of immense assistance here. Systematic theology, church history, biblical theology, a thorough knowledge of one's own time and culture. But nothing must come between the preacher and his text. Woo! 
That's step one. You get it? We preach the word straight to you. Part B. Whoop. There's a part B. I heard an amen. Thank you. Part B. Preaching is also inevitably and in the nature of the case, the application of the word of God. Some have denied this or at least seriously qualified it. Even those calling themselves reformed have occasionally been uncomfortable with the linking of exposition and application. Why? The application appears to demand such directness on the part of the minister and his approach to his people as to expect them to do something with the truth with which they are confronted. I'm just reading this. It needs to be stressed that the ultimate fruitfulness of preaching is the result not of our own skill or inventiveness or passion or zeal, but of the work of God by His Spirit in the hearts of those who hear. And at the same time, it is perfectly clear from scriptures, they're quoting scripture, that truth is in order to goodness and the great touchstone of truth, its tendency to promote holiness. Out of that quote. And that preaching is vastly more than announcement. It is exposition and application. It is truth driven home. It is truth with a cognitive and also a moral dimension. This man's words, not mine. What do the people do in Nehemiah? Let's get back to Nehemiah. What is their response when they give the sense of the word? Oh, no. Right? (laughs) What do we do at the beginning of our worship service? We are called into God's presence. God is the one that initiates with us. I make a few announcements. Right after that, what happens? Confession. Because when you are brought into the presence of a holy God, and the light shines into the dark places of your soul, what do you say? Oh, no. What have we done? That said, the Lord doesn't leave us there, right? He's going to turn our mourning into dancing. Verse 9, right? All the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord. They were mourning. They began to weep. They wept collectively. They got, they got loud. With cries and sobs and tears. Sobs of contrition and a sense of unworthiness. That said, look at verses 9 through 12. I'm going to highlight some of it, right? What did they start saying to him? This day is holy to the Lord your God. Eat the fat. Hmm. How many of you cut the fat off the meat and put it to the side so you can be uh, healthy? That's okay. Do that. Not today. Not the day that is holy. Eat the fat. Mmm, it's good. Drink that sweet wine. Ooh, not just the kind to help settle your stomach, Timothy. The good wine. And not only that, send portion. Overflowing with abundance. Send portions to those who have nothing. Why? This day is holy. Don't be grieved. The joy of the Lord is your strength. All the people went and they did it. They went and they eat and they drink. Here's Tim Keller's quote. God sees us as we are. He loves us as we are. He accepts us as as we are. Period. Stop right there. That said, by his grace, he does not leave us where we are. In other words, the conviction of sin is a means, not an end. We, we pray the prayer of confession, but then what do we move on to? Singing and joy, right? This is the day the Lord has made. Jesus in Mark chapter 1, 14, the earliest, at least what we think, the earliest version of the gospel of Mark, the oldest one, the shortest one, the simplest one, very first thing we hear about Jesus is guess what? 
This is what he says, Mark 1, 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? What about this part? Repent. What? Repent and believe in the gospel. We know what repentance is, right? All church folk. Most of you are. If you're not, hey, I'm so glad you're here. Let's talk later. Repentance. Turning around. You are headed towards whatever it is in this world that you think is going to give you sustenance. Whatever it may be. I'm not even going to go through the list. You know what it is. It's the thing you wake up in the morning. It's the first thing you think about. Oh, I can't wait to... What is that thing? It's the last thing you think about when you go to bed. Oh, I wish I had some more of... God says, turn away from those things. Good things even. But if they are in the created world, if they are not holy, 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 separate from this creation, they're going to lead you to death. If you got the priorities wrong. In other words, if you make them your supreme priority, I'm getting carried away. Repent and turn around. John 10.10, Jesus says later, I came that they may have life and have life abundantly. Matthew 9.14-15, through 15, the disciples came to him and they say, Hey, why do the we and the Pharisees fast? Oh, these are the disciples of John the Baptist, right? I love that guy. Why? Hey, how come we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, Jesus, your disciples do not fast? Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. Shouldn't they be fasting? Everyone else is fasting? Jesus said to them, let this hit you. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. In other words, if Jesus is with you, how can you fast? The day is holy to the Lord. It's the Sabbath, the Lord's day. How can you fast? Not even the Catholics, I love them, do that. Man's chief end, the Westminster divines insist, is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Psalm 30, 11 through 12. You have turned my mourning into dancing. I'm not going to do a jig for you. You have loosened my sackcloth. It's fasting, right? You have clothed me instead with what? Gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I give thanks to you forever. He turns our mourning into dancing. And here's the main reason in the text that they are not supposed to mourn and fast and stay in repentance mode. We need to repent daily. That said, they're supposed to switch. Why? It's over and over and over again in the text. It's a holy day. It's a holy day. It's a Sabbath. It's a feast. It's a festival. It's a party. It's not for mourning. It's for dancing. We're going to move. Hey, we're almost there. Last one. Do what the Word says. I'm going to close us out, similar, almost close us out, with a quote from that same commentary. I'm going to read it to you again. Not the same thing, something new. The day was holy because it was the first day of the seventh month and the start of a series of festivals in the Jewish religious calendar, including the Day of Atonement, you know that one, and the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles. The first day of the month was a day of solemn rest, comparable to the Sabbath. But the day anticipated the Feast of Booths an especially exciting festival for children who must have enjoyed the prospect of camping and sleeping under temporary shelters in memory of the protection afforded their ancestors during their wilderness wanderings. It does appear as though this feast had been forgotten after being celebrated when the people first returned to the land in Ezra 3, almost a century earlier. The Feast of Tabernacles was a family affair with its ritual of special food and delicacies, it was definitely not a time for weeping 
but to be giving thanks and recollecting God's goodness and faithfulness to Israel. You can look it up. You can Google it. Guess what? The Feast of Tabernacles is a Jewish holiday held in the fall to celebrate the gathering of what? The harvest. A week-long harvest. A harvest feast. A harvest party, if you will. A festival of tents and booths that was a specially exciting festival for children. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. What does James 1.22 say? This is one of my memory verses that I learned from my son, Ezra. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. James says some other fun things in there. Read it. James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. What do the people in our text do? What do the people of God do? Immediate obedience. No questions were asked. No excuses were made. No delay was given. The Bible said go and do and they went and they fulfilled it. And of course, this ritual, this feast, these holy days in the Old Testament, as all holy days today, as today, as a Sabbath, still all do. They point to who? Jesus Christ. The true fulfillment of the harvest feast, the bread of heaven, and to the coming of the Spirit on a day like Pentecost. Who knows, maybe today. Amen? Amen. Please rise for the doxology.